Hello and welcome everybody uh, to Preferred Return. My name is Kale Skalrud. I'm the CRO at Altbia, and I am for another episode guest emceeing for your typical host, Jeff Williams. And today I am hanging out with Mark Roberge, who I have the privilege of, of going pretty far back with. And uh, he's now a co-founder over at Stage 2 Capital. And our hope with Preferred Return is, is to bring some interesting perspectives to, to both the market of, of private investing, but more generally around tactics, the trends they're seeing, how they're reacting, perhaps the use of technology, good stuff like that. And I've always been a, a follower of Stage 2 and an admirer of Mark, and I, I love what they're doing with their model and him and Jay and, and Sean and all the rest of the team. And so, Mark, thank you for joining us, man. Thanks, Cal. It's great to be here with you. No doubt. And so we were just catching up. Summer's winding down. It, it sounds like it's, it's been an exciting time. Stage two is rocking and rolling. And to start off, and I think agenda-wise, and just more for kind of guiding our audience, my hope was for you to elaborate a little bit on stage two's point of view. I talked to a lot of GPs, uh, and I definitely find your, your approach there certainly differentiated. I think the audience would find it interesting. And then I know you've got a very interesting thesis around the failure rate between seed and series A plus firms that that is, is always kind of I've been enamored by. I think the audience would love that stuff. And then I, of course, would love to get your take on the on the jump from operator to investor. And mm-hmm. then we got some other some other stuff kind of sprinkled in there. But hopefully that'll that'll give us some ammo for today. Does that sound all right? Oh, it's a lot. It's great. It's a lot of action, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. So stage two. Uh, what, what's the scoop there, man? I guess like yeah, uh, wherever you want to start. Sure. I think, um, you know, it's pretty, the mission's pretty intertwined in my own like professional first principles and career to date. So let me just kind of wind that story up and then hopefully it gives the audience an understanding of why we are and what we try to do. Um, So I don't come from the investor side. I come from the operating side. I did a handful of startups in my career. Uh, The last one was HubSpot as part of the founding team and was the founding CRO there. Uh, and we, a couple of us had met at MIT and, and launched the business in 06. And um, nine years later, we were ringing the bell and I, on my side, had scaled the revenue to 100 million and took them to the IPO. And at that point, was ready to kind of take a break and rest for a bit and was very fortunate to be recruited into Harvard Business School um, to, to build out the sales curriculum there and join as a full-time professor. Um, so that sounded like a really honorable opportunity you know at the point i was like uh I might have whatever you professor robert i don't think so <laughs> uh, but it was just you know it was a unique opportunity because like you know a lot of the harvard included the business schools were trying to evolve from just being like more consultant and banking a lot of the students want to do entrepreneurship so they're evolving their their faculty and curriculum and one cool thing about Harvard, I, mean, I went to business school at MIT. So like, you know, people ask me about that. But one cool thing about Harvard is uh, um, a lot of other, not only do you build the sales curriculum there, but like they sell 30 million cases every year to all the other business schools. So a lot of other business schools use that curriculum to inspire their own courses. So in a way, it was an opportunity to influence how a lot of business schools taught sales, um, which, which I feel so humbled to do. Um, and we, we and use finally, HBS case, case studies at Stern, hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so I've, I've been able to publish like 12 of them over my career there. And, um, 
And it also gave me a lot of space to do what I love, which is to help startups and help entrepreneurs. Um, so rather than being on, you know, 40 advisory boards every year and talking to every company once or twice a year, which isn't fun for anyone, I basically chose a different startup a quarter and spent a day a week with them. And um, over the course of four or five years, I probably worked with 15. Um, I would say six of them are unicorns today. Um, so I worked with Asana, VTS, Salsify, Drift, you know, those types of plays. And certainly some went sideways, right? And it was a very cool time in my career because I wasn't 80 hours a week deep on one play, but spread across so many, you know, between the gigs I got involved with, the gigs I lightly got involved with, my students, all that kind of stuff. And I started to see some patterns. And I was actually shocked that the failure rate of a Series A funded business versus a B versus a C were all similar. Like the, the research I saw at Harvard, it showed that around 72% failure rate, which you, me you measure failure as like giving back 1x money or more uh, or less, right? And just one and, quick, like you would, you would think like intuitively that yeah. the failure rate would go down over Way time. Down. Yeah. Like who would have thought that a series C and like the failure of a series C funded businesses. And that just statistically said to me that as an ecosystem, we're not very good at scaling. Mm -hmm. And I started to explore that and reflect on it. And I realized that so many of the, the gigs I was involved in and the companies I was watching that failure came back to them answering two strategic questions poorly. And that was how fast, when should you scale and how fast? Mm -hmm. And so if I unpack that a bit, and honestly, like, I think a lot of the, some of that was driven by the founders execution, but the investors weren't helping. The board wasn't helping. They're saying, hey, let's hit the brakes. <laughs> yeah. No, it was hurting them, honestly. And so what I saw was, First off, the decision on when to scale was just inadequate. A lot of them were like, well, they all say when you have product market fit. But then when you ask them what's product market fit, they're like, oh, we have five beta customers and they like it. It's like, it needs to they be might, more Some that. of them pay us, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it needs, that's a key question. We need more than that. And then once they decide to scale, basically like, it seemed like some board member would just like, they maybe were on the board at Snowflake and they're like, oh yeah, this is this was Snowflake's year one, two, three, four. So let's just do that. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like you you have to understand what the capabilities of this organization are to determine how fast they can scale, not like some other peer company. And so so that's so what I developed. Thinking, right? Yeah. So that, that's what I developed was a framework that I call the science of scaling to help organizations use internal data and boards, boards and founders to use internal data to decide precisely when they're ready to scale. And then once they've done that, how fast they can scale. And so you can, you can go to stage two's website and download that. It's taught at Harvard, it's taught at MIT, it's started at other places. And, you know, I've been at it for five years with that. I'll plug it to the science of scale. I mean, obviously sales acceleration for me is, is gospel, right? And that, that was, are you going to publish science of scaling? I anyway. hope so. I need to yeah. find the time. I largely because I want to donate the proceeds. Like, so I donate the proceeds of sales acceleration formula to a great nonprofit called build.org. 
And I would love to publish the science of scaling to help a broader set of the ecosystem, but also to donate the proceeds to something around mental health. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to find the bandwidth to do that. Um, and honestly, every quarter I make it a little better, but I just, it's ready for publishing. It's good. It's, I think it's fine enough and I just got to find the time. I would definitely go to stage two dot capital and then check that out. That's definitely an anchor piece of content that I kind of live by. I've, I know I got this question, a little foreshadowing coming for you later. And I was curious if you were going to do a plug, but, uh, I, uh, that's one of the things that I most often give to people. Thank you. Yeah, you know, no. anything that can decrease that failure rate and get out there, sure. it's, it's free, whatever, just go do it. And just so you know, so the sales acceleration formula that Kale mentioned is that's the book that I wrote at the last year of HubSpot, because at the time I was sort of known as this data-driven sales leader. And it just talks about how I use data really aggressively within the HubSpot sales org to drive scale. And so if you want to check that one out, you can, all the, all the proceeds are donated. Um, so anyway, that, that's what was happening. And then in 2018, I had a call with my co-founder, Jay Poe, who was at Bessemer at the time. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm a revenue VC. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what, what is a revenue VC? He's like, I don't know. He's like, I'm looking around my peers and a lot of them came from banking and other places and they're great investors, but like, I don't understand why they are on these boards advising these companies afterwards because they don't have any operating experience. And so much of this is just about driving sales. So I want to be a more value-added VC. So I've actually been going to SDR school on Saturdays for the last couple of months to learn how to cold call. And I actually have a job offer to become VP of sales at one of our portfolio companies. And I started like asking this Jay questions. He was like crushing it. And he's like, hey, do you want to do a go-to-market accelerator for the best of our portfolio? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So we did that for a couple months. And then he's like, yeah, this is a fund. I'm like, what do you mean this is a fund? He's like, we need to go out and we need to start the first fund that's running back by sales, marketing, and customer success leaders. We need to go get the most famous, like successful go-to-market executives to invest in our fund and then go bring that knowledge to the next generation of entrepreneurs and their ventures. And I was like, that's, that would be big if, it, yeah. if you could do it. And that and sounds like, like fun. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know you that well, to be honest with you, but here's my 12 friends that are CROs at public SaaS companies to go talk to them. And not only did he come back with 12 checks from them, but he came back with like 60 referrals of other friends who needed to be part of this. The way we set up the fund was uh, we could only have 99 LPs and we maxed that out pretty quickly. And then we went out and started the test if the entrepreneurs liked it. So if I can pause right there too, because yeah. like kind of conventional method, right, is LPs don't necessarily have any domain expertise. What they're looking for is diversification, right? They're capital yeah. allocators. So it, it's kind of turning that model on its head, right? We're now yeah, all of pension a sudden- funds, like endowments, you know, which it's true. Like I don't, I don't know. Like you, you actually probably, Kale, in your position, would have a better perception of like how this might revolutionize the VC world, or does it have a place? My current instinct is not necessary like it's one form i do believe that the non-operator you know career banker investor hedge fund turned venture capitalist is a pastime 
Like I never sure, understood sure. why they were great investors, but I don't understand why they're so influential on the operational strategy after. Yeah, well, that that's a big question mark too, right? And yeah. I, just real, real quick before we move there, because I, I yeah. kind of share that vibe, but right. But if you think like traditionally, an LP gives you capital, yeah. happy days, right? In your environment, yeah. an LP provides capital, but they also yes. have a, an ecosystem of like companies that supports origination. They have expertise that they can lend. So it's almost like you're distributing the function of a GP kind of into your LPs. So it's a much more kind of synergistic relationship. So to me, like when I was early days, when I was learning about stage two, it was like, wow, this makes a shitload of sense. And obviously, operationally, how do you codify that knowledge and distribute it amongst the portfolio? How yeah. do you coach them around what's a good potential investment versus a bad one? There's a lot of stuff to kind of pull it down to the ground. Um, but that was the first thing that kind of stood out to me. And I think to your point, too, like a simple observation is, you know, a, a VC sits on 10 boards and they're giving advice with way less than perfect information. And a lot of that stuff is like that never walked in the shoes once or not even once, right? Let alone two or three or four times where they can call out blind spots or pitfalls that they've seen in different contexts. So, so I'm with you. I think it's kind of like, huh, I'm not really sure that makes a ton of sense, but it's super common. Yeah. I call it the inappropriate cut and paste where like investor or board member sees success story here and then tries to put it here without regard of the contextual differences. That's where a lot of this stuff, whether it's like hiring a sales leader or a demand gen strategy or a compensation plan or a pricing model or a growth model or whatever, these are all contextual. What are you selling to who and at what stage? And a lot of folks without that operating instinct mess that up. And, and, And that was one of the motivators for me was like, the strongest voice at the table is the big investor, regardless of background or whatever. So anyway, I'm not trying to like say that investors are dumb or like all board members don't know what they're talking about. My only point is it did seem like in the overall ecosystem, there was a substantial missing piece, which is someone at the investor seat that knew a lot about driving revenue. And sure. that's well, really I mean- what we... Uh, to fail and then in your thesis too right like is that condition correlated with uh, the same failure right despite yes. growth in capital right it's like yes. well actually where, where's this advice coming from <laughs> around yes. it's like oh hey you've got product market fit why don't you hire 50 people because we right. all know that bo- bookings is a f- function of quota it's like oh right. well shit we, we have to pay these people and now we're out of money and they didn't generate sales because quotas don't equal bookings and it's like Yes. An operator would have probably told you that. <laughs> there's a there's a long list of common themes you're hitting on them. It's like, oh gosh, it's working. Let's hire 20 salespeople next month without the regard of like, when you have two salespeople and you try to hire 20 in a month, like how many interviews that is, who's going to onboard them, how many managers you need, how many leads you need, just a lot of messes. That, and unfortunately, like yeah. most companies do that. And it fails. Um, other advice is like, go find someone who's been there, done that. You're at a million in revenue. I gave you a bunch of money. You want to get to a billion dollar. Like, go find a CRO that's run a billion dollar company. Happens all the time. Terrible hire. Terrible hire at that stage, yeah. right? Or go you get know, a Salesforce rep, yeah, rep somebody right. from like a, like a totally established, you know, enterprise yeah. sales environment and poke them in a Series A business. And it's got to be the same, right? 
selling salesforce.com versus selling for a series a funded company with a brand that no one knows like it's so different so anyway there's just like a long list of those common themes and that's what we set out to do and um it was really valid by the entrepreneur community as well fund one has performed well and then in 2022 we raised fund two Um, we set out to raise 50 million bucks and a major endowment in the university arena that we're psyched to be partnered with came in with a large check on top that put us well over and then we just recently announced a $150 million fund. So yeah, the network has grown to over 300 of these folks, you know, the CRO, CMO, CCOs of like Snowflake and Zoom and Asana and Salesforce and SAP. And I think we've got a large percentage of the, you know, the software 100 or whatever you would call it covered. And, and every day it's a, it's a humbling honor to play that accordion. And, you know, we, we get half our deal flow from them. Um, every deal that we diligence, we bring in half a dozen of them uh, based on their industry experience. And every deal we do over the course of the next six months, they'll talk to probably about 12 of our LPs, whether they're building their first customer success team or setting up an ABM program or tweaking their pricing model. We have the person that probably wrote the book on that to, to help them. And so from the LP standpoint, it probably on average, they might do like two calls a year. So we have we have a, a two-person investment team. One is a go-to-market, former go-to-market exec teamed up with a traditional investor to really understand the context and be able to pull in the right person at the right time and provide them with the right context to, to make sure that that experience is value-add and to not over-rely on this network of very busy people, but use them very effectively. Beautiful. And then now extending into an accelerator, right? And yeah. Just launched. Yeah. So honestly, we don't think this model is like unique to a US-based play at the stage that we invest. We invest in companies that are between seed and A, around a million in revenue. And, you know, the concept of bringing go-to-market expertise to help entrepreneurs is not restricted to that location or stage. This could easily be expressed in a seed and a growth fund in Asia and Europe and LATAM, whatever. And that would be the long-term vision, but we got to go baby steps. And so we kicked off our seed strategy last year in stealth and came up with uh, a go-to-market accelerator. So businesses with say tens of thousands or low hundreds of thousands of ARR that are thinking about building their first go-to-market org. And we put them through a 10-week course that you're a part of. Um, You know, how do you hire your first rep? How do you pay them? How do you set up the first price model? How do you set up a cold calling campaign? How does PLG work? Um, you know, just all the first, the first of building that program. And this year we publicly announced it. We got about 400 applications and chose 15 companies. And so we have a, a small uh, vehicle that is backed by the emerging leaders that we hope will be LPs and they hope will be LPs in our flagship fund down the road. But in the meantime, they're extraordinarily smart, talented individuals who are managers and directors at some of the best companies out there that are trying to learn how to become angel investors and advisors and board members. And we provide a vehicle for them to practice and learn that. Beautiful. Good stuff. And I love just the kind of the compounding ness, if you will, of, of all those activities, right. And how one feeds the other and kind of all the while lifting the tide for all the boats. That's uh, that's good stuff. So w- one question for you, 
So I guess one of the first kind of trends that was called out and kind of publicly acknowledged was that family offices were starting to basically ingest private equity capabilities. So instead of parking capital with a private equity shop, they would bring those kind of capabilities in-house. And I think if we just kind of agreed that stage two's model is a little bit of an inversion of what's traditional, where the LPs are bringing capital, yes, for sure, but they're also bringing pointed expertise. They have exposure to, you know, I guess, asymmetric deal flow, prop deal flow, if you will. I guess, do you see the traditional GP LP model changing over time and becoming something that's a little more distributed and where the value exchange isn't so much capital and returns? Any thoughts on that stuff? Yeah, I saw that question and I, that was the one I was like, I don't know if I have a lot of insight on that, to be honest with you. Um, okay. I know it looks like I do because of the way we set our things up, but this came from the thing I believe strongly in, which I think almost everyone does, which is the VC who only has investing experience, it might go away a bit. Maybe we shouldn't talk about it at the individual level, but at the firm level. If you're like five partners who, who are ex-bankers and you've only invested, I kind of think that's going to go away and that there needs to be some form of a strategy for value add. And a lot of it was driven by the abundance of capital that's out there. You know, if you were a VC in the eighties, capital was your differentiator, you know, okay. and like, and now it's not, it's really competitive out there. And to get into the best deals, you have to have a big value adding story. Now people do that in many different ways. Like Andreessen has an entire staff. Right. And if you read the case on them, it's like crazy how much rigor and operational expertise they brought to the model. Uh, there's a firm back here in Boston, Underscore, that basically gives their advisors their own preferred shares in exchange for their advisement. And they have a roster of people. So there's many different ways to do this. We happen to do it with our LP base. And I think that's a cool opportunity. It was a lot of work and has been. Um, but you know, does that necessarily mean that like you're not going to have funds 10 years from now that are exclusively backed by like the Vanderbilt and Georgetown endowment and the GE pension fund? I still think that's fine. But but the LP base certainly does present an opportunity to create unique value add. And that's what we've exploited. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think the other kind of interesting anomaly too is minted tech entrepreneurs, because I think that was another thing too, where you're like, hey, what goes into a fund and how does this work? And that's where we're seeing the landscape change a lot, you know, because they start a fund. The first thing they do is stand up a data warehouse and they get clear on like their investment thesis and they approach it like defining an ICP and go to market and thinking about like almost like fund investor fit. And they're just bringing kind of these frameworks that are super, uh, I guess, translated from like SaaS and go to market world. Or you have folks that are coming over from hedge. And especially, I think we'll see for the first time ever, there's more private fund managers than hedge fund strategy fund managers. And so, you know, those folks are used to, and I joke about this all the time, but it's like, you know, we're going to take satellite images and correlate that with target transactions. And we're going to speculate on peanut production, <laughs> you know, and it's like bringing that kind of outlook to private capital markets I investing know. is just very different. So uh, the, the landscape is changing a lot. And it, it's interesting, but to your point, capital is a flush. So the days of, hey, here's a check. And that's what we're bringing to the table. It raises a good point, Kale. And it's like, I'm very early in the anecdotal observations here, but my current hypothesis and observation is like, let's say if I had to choose between a VC managing director who 
like was CEO of a company that they took from zero to IPO multi-billion dollars versus a hedge fund manager that now is coming to VC and is running a fund. As an entrepreneur all day, I'm going with the former CEO all day. As an LP? <laughs> oh, yes. That's I don't know, dude. I yeah, do not know because, because like my anecdotal observation is that the former operators have just hands down exceptional instincts around these businesses. Like what it's like to sell into the market, they call BS on the strategies that aren't going to work. Um, and then certainly after the fact, being so valuable to like tipping the board in favor of success had they not been involved. But I do find that the ex-operators don't do thorough diligence and are more apt to invest in problems because they know how to solve them without recognizing that they're going to have 20 portfolio companies and they can't be as intimately involved to solve those problems. Now, on the other hand, like that's all portfolio fund, construction on yeah, the other that, hand, right? Yeah, yeah, the hedge fund manager is going to do like five times more diligence, all the customer calls, know exactly what I think about, see the future, all, wonderful investor. But then like after the fact, I hope they don't talk too much in the boardroom outside of like what they know about, which is like the macro effects. Like, so, so as an LP, I don't know which one I'd rather bet on. I probably would yeah. rather go with the hedge fund investor, but that's why we do our model in the way we do, which is from the beginning of a deal analysis, we have the traditional investor with the go-to-market investor. So they're both bought in and we can get the best of both worlds. You know? Wow. Good stuff. Uh, Thank you again for sitting with us on this podcast, Mark. It's always a pleasure, my man. Uh, very, very good stuff. So one, uh, we can start to wind down here a bit, but so a good chunk of our audience is obviously on the GP side. And I think, you know, the headline right now is recession, economic downturn. And a lot of the stuff that we're hearing is just more rigor around portfolio monitoring. Um, and I guess no matter what the market is, there, there's some cohort of buyers, right, that's advantaged. And we could say that in a recession, valuations get kind of course corrected back to more rational numbers, and it's a good time to be in capital allocator. But I guess as you're thinking about, okay, potential for a recession, what are some things that are going through your head that might be useful inputs or, or stuff for, for your fellow GPs out there? Yeah, I mean, I'll, there's a lot of stuff that's already been said before. Like, you know, it, it's always the typical playbook, which is like go back, understand runway, make sure you get like, you know, 18, 24 months plus in every single company. Um, that's all the standard stuff that I think everybody knows. It's a great time to be investing right now. Um, you know, I think someone put it best with this particular downturn so far. We don't know how deep it's going to go, whatever. But it's almost like, you know, if, if we look at it as mostly triggered by the low interest rates, which caused the fixed income opportunities to be, you know, not very good, which shifted a lot of demand toward equities specifically growth equity, specifically tech, which caused a, a price to sale ratio of historic highs, right? Which, yeah. which led to a price to sale ratio in the private equities to be enormous. Um, and it's almost like we have to like draw the line and it'll look like this and it came down to this and it's just going to go like that. So just pretend like that never happened. Never happened. Like if you're working at like, if you're working at snowflake right now and you are worth like $8 million in 2021 and now you're only worth three, that wasn't real. Okay. Like you're, you're like, 
this is what is more real. Like the PS ratios are like back in order. And what that means for us is we're looking at our portfolio and we have a lot of opportunities to buy more ownership in plays that we like at valuations below what they were last year. And essentially what it means is like, it's almost like if you add up the capital we deployed in the ownership we had, it's almost like 2021 never happened. It kind of came back to something closer to normal. So that's been a cool opportunity. I think the one thing that I find to be important and I don't think is discussed a lot as a GP, and this is going to hone into my like, you know, go-to-market lens, but I think it's useful at the board discussion, is um, there is a very high likelihood that the ideal customer profile, the target customer, that it was optimal for this business that you invested in. And the message by which they went after that target market is now suboptimal given this economic conditions. You know, so so what I'm saying is this this downturn, like most downturns, is felt differently in different markets. Like tech, growth tech is laying people off. Other sectors are like there's layoffs happening, you know. So there's a really good chance that like whatever this venture you invested in learned in 2019, 2020, 2021 in terms of the optimal market and the message by which to go at that market now needs to be pivoted. And it's really hard for entrepreneurs and founders and senior leadership teams who are in it every day to see that. And that's the opportunity that we have at the GP level and the board level is to really challenge them on that, challenge them to pivot faster. So just as an example, people selling into growth tech um, in Q4 of last year with a growth value proposition cleaned up. And today, no way, right? So, But if you're selling like a do more with less value proposition into industrials, that's probably really good for this economy. So, so just like that would be like something that I think is important across the board that is different than the typical like shore up capital and that kind of stuff. Totally. And I think what's interesting, right, is I think a lot of us, especially when you're in the trenches operating, you kind of, when something starts to land from a messaging or an ICP value prop alignment perspective, you stick to it and you forget that target moves and that you iteratively have to follow it, you know, to stay in tune with where the market is. Uh, and so, you know, don't be afraid to change course and kind of do it and obviously be data-driven in your decisioning, but that it is an iterative process, just like product development is an iterative process, right? And yeah. there was an OG sales mentor of mine who used to say, you know, that no matter how you slice it, you've got three customers, right? The customers that are growing, the customers that are maintaining in status quo or those that are in structural decline. And really, and, if, and it's okay if certain cohorts move across that spectrum, especially as economic cycles hit, you just need to make sure you know which groups where and what the value prop is. And it's either we'll help you grow or we'll save you money or, you know, you can you can maintain this and, and go, you know, piss off for two weeks on vacation, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. Exactly. I think that, that's exactly. very actionable, very tactical advice. That's really, really good stuff. Um, last question for you, my friend. This is a personal one. Uh, and I've been a fan of Tim Ferriss and I always love that he was able to kind of get to the root of stuff. And he was a big advocate of like, how do you sequence questions? But instead of asking, you know, what's a book that you recommend the most, it's uh, what's a book that you've given away the most. Um, and if it's your book, that's all good. But if there's something else, then I would maybe swap that question out with, um, who's somebody that you follow mm. that you think is kind of progressing the sport or pushing the envelope or just somebody who, whose content has been, you've been kind of enamored with lately. 
Mm. Yeah, I I read a lot of different people. Um, I would say like most recently, I had an awesome experience on the Grit podcast with Jubin over at uh, Kleiner Perkins. Um, okay. He's been trying to get on my radar for a year. We've been trying to get, meet each other in a, a, a city and finally was able to make it happen this summer on campus at Harvard. And he's the best interviewer I ever had. I mean, you're a great, Cal. Like, this has been great. But this guy, <laughs> this guy was like, he started out, he's like, I read every piece of content that my interviewees write. I put out and that. he's like, I, yeah, I couldn't beautiful. do it for you. He's like, he wrote too much. But like, he, he knew stuff that I'd forgotten about myself. We dug in deep. And it was awesome. And so since then, I've been really enjoyed listening to the Grit podcast over at Kleiner. Um, and uh, for perspective on the industry, he's got some rock star operators out there. So if you hadn't heard of that one, check it out. Beautiful. One quick follow. Was there a best question he asked you where you're like, damn, that cut through all the noise and was just to the uh, simple as can be? We had a really deep conversation about anxiety. I need to listen. I haven't heard that episode. Yeah, you got to go check it out. It's, it's like an hour right. long, but it's like a lot of got a lot of great like emails about it. Um, you know, I I'm pretty vocal about my battles with anxiety and not just like I had really deep, like bad anxiety, like life life impacting anxiety that got in the way of me being able to do work. And I had a struggle a couple of times coming back from it. I'm on medication. I've been in therapy for 10 years. I think everybody should. And I just, we had a really good conversation about that. And I always try to like, you know, speak out about it just because like the stigma sucks that you have with it. A lot of people hide it and it's too bad. Like you don't really hide cancer, but you hide anxiety and, and depression and I just hope, I think we're crawling out of it. I think this next generation is much more empathetic and understanding of mental health. But for whatever reason, like some of the things that happen in my life, society values as successes. So um, I can be a little more uh, risk-taking, I suppose, with saying these things. And I try to, so we got in pretty deep on that, which is pretty cool. Cool. So like getting to like some some vulnerable topics, right? I think that's always a yeah. good, good signal that you're, you're having something meaningful conversation wise well right on mark roberge ladies and gentlemen uh check out stage two check out all the extraordinary content i'm a huge advocate um and thank you again man we know you're a busy guy appreciate you uh you hanging out with us oh my pleasure Kale. thank you very much